The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, and you'll find the text to be read in your hearing, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, God's inspired Word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This is God's Word, it's the truth. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abayad. And Abayad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Whenever I read this text, I'm reminded of two things. One, is I am reminded whenever I do a genealogy that I ought to quote for you Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. That includes genealogies. They're there for a reason. I know they can get a little boring when they're read, but they're there for a reason. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. The second thing was an experience in my early part of my training for the ministry. As some of you know, I had the blessing of informally enjoying the blessing of R.C. Sproul as a mentor in life and ministry. And uh, But it started off formally. He was actually my professor in preaching 
uh, and I had him for one of my classes. I had him. I always tell people I, I was good friends with R.C. back then, but I was a better friend with Vesta because I knew R.C. didn't grade a single paper. Vesta graded all the papers, and I wanted to be her best friend. And so his wife uh, was uh, one of my good friends. I made sure of that for the sake of, uh, of at least some glint of mercy during the time of uh, grading. But um, but I remember one, uh, we were sitting there, and the class was on the importance of Scripture reading and preaching. Uh, and he, of course, really emphasized the importance of the reading of Scripture. He says, you know, everything else that you're about to say, we've got to figure out whether it's faithful to God's Word or not. But when you're reading Scripture, we don't have to figure that out. That is God's Word. So read it. It's crucial. It's important. So I, he, I'm sitting there, and he says... Um, Mr. Reader, come to the front. And so I dutifully came to the front. He opened up to the text I just read, Matthew chapter 1. He said, verses 1 through 17 is your text for your sermon. Now read it. And uh, as if you're about to preach it. So I did. And when I finished, he put his arm around me and he said, you may be seated. The way he said it, I wasn't quite sure what was going to come next. And so I went back and sat down and he said, now, gentlemen... That is the way you read the scripture before you preach. Even if you, like Mr. Reader, got half of the names pronounced wrong, read it boldly. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a compliment to me at all. <laughs> so, so anyway, the bio, I love the text. I love genealogies. I actually delight in doing them. Now, I'm going to frighten you here. We could be months in just studying this genealogy if we traced it through. The way it's constructed, the individual parts, who's there, how it's put together, it is of unbelievable, inestimable depth and breadth and height in terms of biblical insights. But don't get frightened. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you a couple of insights from it. But let me remind you, this is our concluding sermon in our Advent series, The Kings of Christmas. We have looked at three that are mentioned in the Bible up to this point. The king of the Roman Empire, the emperor himself, Caesar Augustus. We have taken a look at him, and we have taken a look at Herod the Great, and we have taken a, a look at the king from the east who the Magi represented. Now, there's two things, before I review them, there's two things I want to mention about them. Uh, as when we've looked, at, hopefully there's a couple of lessons you've already learned about these kings in general. And that's this. The kings of the earth, while varying in degrees of popularity, power, and uh, possessions, there's a clear lesson that keeps coming through here. Is that God is sovereign over the kings. Do we have a decree from Caesar Augustus? Yes. Taxation? Yes. Administration? Yes. Information? Yes. Is it going to be a regular uh, decree? Yes. Every 14 years. Is it there? And, 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 and as he puts it in place, did everybody respond? Yes. Did that include Joseph and Mary? Yes. And what does that accomplish? Fulfillment, Micah 5, 2, that the Savior will be born, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. You see, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over kings. God is sovereign. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says not that God is sovereign even over evil kings like Herod the Great. 
because of Herod the Great's commitment to destroy the baby Jesus, the king, then you get the fulfillment of two more prophecies. Here is, here is the Bible being, being fulfilled at point after point after point through the decrees of kings who don't even know the Lord. A king from the east who sends his magi over to see the observance and the fulfillment of Numbers 24:17, The king of the empire of Rome, Caesar Augustus or Gaius Octavius. The king, Herod, Herod the Great, the Idumean, the usurper king over Israel. All of them, here's what the Bible says, the, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wheresoever he wishes, even as he turns the rivers to the sea. You see the king of kings. You see the sovereign Lord at work through kings. So God is sovereign. Now, I don't know about you, but that's encouraging for me. Have you all ever had somebody in, in authority over you that you didn't vote for? Did that ever occur in your life? Recently? Four years ago? I don't know. Here's what I know, though. I think it's right for every believer to be engaged. I believe it's right for us to be engaged passionately and thoughtfully. But here's another thing I know. No one's in authority but that God has appointed. And God will accomplish His purposes no matter whether they declare they're in league with Him or not. That God is sovereign over the kings of this earth. And that God works through kings and governors and mayors. That God accomplishes his purposes. So I can live not carelessly, but confidently in the truth of a sovereign God. Secondly, there are very specific lessons. Have you ever wondered, why is it that the writers of the Gospels were moved to include these three kings? The nameless king from the east and his representatives, the Magi, the king of the emperor, that is Octavius, Gaius Octavius, Caesar Augustus, and Herod the Great. Why is it that they get included in the narrative? Why is it there? Well, as we walk through it, I tried to give you some basic Big reasons why that would be true. What about the first one we looked at, Caesar Augustus? Why would he be there? Why is Caesar Augustus given to us? Notice the decree. Notice the decree for taxation. Notice a registration. Notice it's a, a regular occurring. In fact, we're informed from the Bible every 14 years. Note that everybody is responding. Note how Joseph and Mary respond and how they get, and they, we are not only see that God is sovereignly working to get Scripture fulfilled, but we see we see something. There's an unmistakable message. These are real people. These are real events. You, listen, I can take you to extra biblical historical books that affirm everything you're reading in the gospel narrative. These are real people, real events, a real decree, real taxation, real registration, real people in real situations. This is real history. This is not. Once upon a time, we thought up a religion around somebody, a mythological feature, uh, a person called Jesus. The, you can check it. This is real history in real time with real people and real events. But what you then begin to see when you put it all together is not only is this real history, but we find out real 
history is really his story. He is writing history. And he is writing it through the affairs of men and women. And Christianity is historically rooted. Secondly, then we get to somebody, a nameless king, and his magi that come, his counselors, who have been motivated by the word of God, Numbers twenty four seventeen, and affirmed by a star that's led them to seek out the, the newborn prophesied king of Israel. They've arised in Jerusalem. They get information that clarifies he's going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, and then the star affirms again. Everybody's asked me, Pastor, you keep talking about that star. Now, you say it's a miracle, and, and there's some other explanations, but can you give us any more? Yes, I'll give you one more thought about the star. Yes, I do believe it was a supernatural, miraculous star made by God for that purpose, but very specifically, I believe that star was simply the Shekinah glory of God. Just the same as the Shekinah glory that came in the wilderness into the Holy of Holies that filled the cloud, the pillar of cloud by night and that descended. I think that's what it was. Notice when does it appear when he was born? What does it do? It leads them over there. Then it appears again to the place where the newborn is. I believe it is the Shekinah glory of God pointing to Emmanuel. The the word has become flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld him and we beheld what? The glory of the Father. This is the Shekinah glory pointing to the one Emmanuel incarnate, God with us. And but what is it that we learn from this? Well, we learn two marks of a believer from these pagan emissaries from a king in the east. Number one, we learn that when God works in your heart, you become a passionate, you become a passionate participant in the gathered worship of God with God centered worship. That's what happens to them. Here they are coming on their way. God's word with God's providence leads them to Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life. And when they get there, they see Jesus and they see Mary. What do they do? They worship him lavishly, generously, sacrificially and intentionally. They didn't worship Mary. It says they worshiped him. They didn't worship worship. They worshiped him. They didn't worship the gifts they brought. They worshiped him. Folks, if there, listen to me. I love you too much not to say this. If there is not within your heart and soul a passionate, forgathered, God-centered, God-pleasing worship, then you really have to take a look. Do you know Jesus? That's why he made you. That's why he saved you. That's why he sustained you. To the praise of his glorious glorious grace in the midst of the assembly of his people. Secondly, secondly, that's the vertical. The second mark is they are marked out. They are marked out by loving obedience. The word... Numbers 24 through 17 led them to Israel. The word, Micah 5, 2, led them to Bethlehem. And now 
the, the, the Lord comes in a dream to warn them, don't go this way. So they went a different way. And when you, God brings you to Jesus, who is the way, your life is always different. You go another way. That's called loving obedience. So that's what we learned out of the context of this situation with um, the Magi. Well, the third thing we looked at was Herod the Great. What is it we wanted to learn about Herod the Great? Well, I know you hear every year there's a war on Christmas, but you can just answer, oh, that's not surprising because Christmas is war. Christmas actually is war. That Christmas is war. Christmas is, first of all, the fulfillment of the divine declaration of war. What did it say back in Genesis 3.15? I'm going to have a... Here's what God said. The woman shall have a seed. That's the anticipation of the virgin birth, because women don't have seed. But this woman, a chosen woman, will have seed, and that seed, that seed will bruise the seed of the serpent. That seed will... Well, I'm sorry, that seed will crush the head of the serpent and be bruised in his heel. In other words, God has declared war on Satan, on sin, and the kingdom of darkness. And when Jesus comes, that's the invasion. That's D-Day. Jesus has come. And Jesus has come to fulfill the divine declaration of war. And what does Satan and the kingdom of darkness do? The evil empire will strike back. It will always strike back. In fact, you just confessed it, didn't you? Boy, this is really interesting. You just, we just did Revelation 17 and 19 at the beginning of the worship service, our confession. Remember what it said about the king of kings? That he shall come and, and what? That the kingdom of darkness will will strike at him to destroy him. So not only do you have the divine declaration of war against Satan, sin, darkness, and death, but that war will continue as the defeat. Now, please look at my careful choice of words. That Jesus, when he came, defeated the evil empire of Satan, sin, darkness, and death. But he did not destroy it. That's why he continually strikes back until Jesus comes again. So we have spiritual warfare until Jesus comes again. And when he comes again, he will destroy the defeated evil empire. But right now, that defeated evil empire is striking back in various ways uh, into the lives of God's people. So here are the... So that... Christianity, Christmas is a real, is a revelation and affirmation that Christianity is war. It's a war that we're fighting battles because the war was won by Jesus and he's coming again to bring to consummation what he has already achieved in the defeat of sin, of Satan, of death, and of darkness. But in the meantime, we have to deal with the evil empire that strikes back against Jesus by striking against his people. Now we come to the last king, king of kings, lord of lords, and that's Jesus. But before I get to this, may I say one more thing to you? I believe God's word is truth. I believe it's truth because it's inspired. It's God-breathed. And because I believe it is inspired, as the Bible says, all scripture is inspired by God, then I believe that God's word is true. That means I believe it's inerrant. It doesn't have any errors in it. It may have some difficult things to understand, but it's inerrant. 
Thirdly, I, I also believe it's not only inspired by God and inerrant. I believe it's infallible. I believe it's utterly reliable. I believe you can build your life. You can build your family. You can build your job. You can build your business. You can build everything on the truth of God's word. And God's word will not be broken. I believe God's word is infallible, reliable. I believe it is inspired. I believe it is inerrant. There's something else I want to tell you today. I believe that God's word is non-contradictory. God never contradicts himself. Whenever you read something that God says in the present, you can be assured that whatever he said in the past affirms what he says in the present. And whatever happens in the future will fulfill what he says in the present and in the past. God's word is inerrant with no errors. It is inspired. There is no doubt about that. Therefore, whenever God speaks in the present, whatever he affirms, it will be consistent with what he has said in the past. And you're about to find that out in this genealogy. What did we learn about the Messiah in the Old Testament? We learned that the Messiah would come through Abraham, even more specifically, through the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Even more specifically, the family of Jesse. Even more specifically, the son of David. And if God said that in the past, then it is affirmed in the present. And whatever he says in the past and the present will be fulfilled in the future. And this genealogy shouts it. This genealogy proclaims it. I, I love the Gospels. I love how they tackle certain issues. But what I love is they all have a specific purpose, and not the least of which is this genealogy. As I said, we could be here for months, and we're not. I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts. Let me just ask you to jot maybe these five things down. Here's the first thing. The first thing is, is the genealogy affirms what God has said in the past about the Messiah. That's the first thing. The Christ is affirmed in this genealogy of what has been said in the past. For instance, I love, I love the way the Gospels do this in general, but particularly Matthew. For instance, I know that who that I know that whoever the Messiah is, he's got to be a man, because by a man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. I know he's got to be a man. But if he's just a man, I also know he's got his own sin problem if he's a son of Adam. So what do we need? We need a new Adam. Don't you love the way John gives you his genealogy of Jesus? It's not through human genealogy. John's genealogy that you heard read at the candle lighting goes back into eternity. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word was enfleshed. Son of God. Son of man. Fully God fully man. If Jesus is just a man, he needs his own savior. But if he's God, 
and he becomes a man, now he is positioned to be my Savior. This sinless Savior, fully God and fully man. And his full humanity is affirmed in two more genealogies. One's in Luke, the genealogy of Mary, and one's in Matthew that we just read, the genealogy of Joseph. That Jesus is fully man. Fully God and fully man is affirmed to us. You see, Jesus is, as the Messiah, he's the anointed one. And there were three anointed offices, prophet, priest, and king. And here's what the Bible says to us. That for Jesus to be the prophet, the final prophet, then he has to be greater than the first prophet, Moses. Moses said, after me will come a prophet greater than me. Jesus is the fulfillment. To do away with the Levitical priesthood, we have to have a priest according to the eternal priesthood, the eternal order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. But for today, to be king of kings, Jesus must be from the covenant nation of Israel, Abraham. Abraham's DNA has to be his. More than that, he has to be of the tribe of Judah. More than that, he has to be of the family of Jesse. More than that, he must be the greater son of David. So not only do you see this genealogy uniquely positioning Jesus to be the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, you can also see how the genealogy affirms essential prophecies in the present that were made in the past. Here he affirms he's of Abraham. Notice the genealogy begins with Abraham. And it affirms he comes through the family of Jesse. And it affirms he comes through the line of David. And notice the emphasis, David the king. And notice that not only does he come through David the king, he comes through David the king by an adopted father who has the legal right of kingship. And he comes through a virgin mother, whereby the substance of David is communicated. Hang with me. Second Samuel 7 not only tells you that the Messiah, the king, when David is set aside by Samuel at Bethlehem to be king, came the prophecy from, now I quote Second Samuel 7, go check me later, I quote, from your own body will come a king forever. For a forever kingdom. From your own what? Body. Well, Jesus doesn't get a body from Joseph. That's his adopted father. He does have legal rights from Joseph. And those legal rights include the regal rights of kingship. But he doesn't have a biological communication from David through Joseph, but he does through Mary. And so when you go study, I hope you, hope you kind of get excited about this and go do it. 
you're going to do what three people emailed me this week. Pastor, I've been doing, you got me interested in the genealogies. I've been reading them this week. And pastor, now listen, you say that they are of David, and but Mary's genealogy is different than Jesus. Uh, Mary's genealogy is different than Joseph. Bingo. Great reading. You're right. Can I go ahead and tell you where the line of departure is? The line of departure is at David. And, and Matthew's genealogy of David, and, and Matthew's genealogy of Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, adopted father of Jesus. Now, most fathers may adopt, but very seldom does a father get adopted. But this father got adopted. And this one, you'll notice that he comes from David. And who does he come from? David's son, King Solomon, and his son, King Rehoboam. But if you go check Mary, Mary also comes from David, but she comes from David's son, Nathan, not Solomon. Our language would be this for 2 Samuel 7. David's DNA will be in Jesus. It is through Mary, through Nathan, to David, to Jesse, to Abraham. And all of it is fulfilled. Not only the legal line, but also the biological fulfillment of the Messiah. So here is the interest, intricacies of this in this genealogy. But let me give you a third thing about the genealogy. The genealogy is absolutely unique. What's unique about it? It's got women. It's got, a, it's got women. I challenge you, go find me a publicized genealogy from the first century in the Middle East in which they documented women. Not only do you have a woman, Mary, which is the biological line documented in Joseph's, as well as Joseph's legal line, you also have four other women that are included. Let me give you another thing. The biographical sketches of those who are included. You know who the women are, don't you? Tamar. Remember that story? Rahab, prostitute. And Matthew can't even use her name. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, adulteress. Tamar and all of the promiscuity of that. Rahab, the prostitute, um, the adulteress Bathsheba, and then not only that, but uh, you've also got Mary, the covenant, faithful, godly woman, and Ruth, a Gentile, brought in. From Moab. In other words, in this genealogy, with the women and the men that are included, you have apostates, you have kings who apostatized and introduced pagan worship into the temple, including Solomon, who at the end of his life had even put up Molech, the god of child sacrifice. You've got the religious, you've got the irreligious. 
You've got prostitutes. You've got murderers. That's what David is. You've got thieves. Have y'all ever noticed that when people run for candidates for office and they put out their CV, have you ever noticed how they try to put out the best CV possible they can? In fact, some of them over-doctorate. They'll even give them, they'll say, oh yeah, I got a degree from such and such. And they find out, no, he didn't get a degree from such. And well, you know, I was there the day they gave degrees and I walked by the outside door. So I just kind of thought I'd include that. It's amazing how all these CVs and resumes are doctored up because people want to impress you. Go take a look at this one. Yes, it fulfills prophecy. Yes, it is glorious. But yes, it contains documented sinners and their sins are documented in the same Bible that records the genealogy. So we know who they are and we know who they are and what they've done. So you've got the honesty of it, you've got fulfilled prophecy, you've got the uniqueness of it, you've got the the intentionality of it. It's absolutely astounding. Now, I want to ask you a question. Has there ever been, I just want you to think, as I worked my way through this, this thing just kept coming into my mind. Has there ever, 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 ever been a king that I have studied who is more marked by humiliation than this king? In the public presentation of the public documents, of the credentials, Has there ever been a king more marked by humiliation? Humiliation of where he was, of of his birth conditions, betrothal. Not even the ceremony of marriage. Humiliation, humiliation of, uh, humiliation of his place of birth a town that was considered the offscouring of the, even the tribe of Judah, Bethlehem. No royal bassinet, a trough. No palace, a stable. No suite of rooms. There's not even room for it in the place. No entourage, just shepherds. No famous parents, but a couple of forgotten descendants in a forgotten line of kings. And it won't stop there. You'll be raised in Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He'll be rejected and despised of men in his public ministry. He'll die the death of a criminal on a cross. He'll be buried in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. He is marked by humiliation at every single point. His conception, his birth, his life, 
his childhood, his public ministry, his death, his burial. No wonder Paul says, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself in taking the form of a bondservant. Do you understand that? He said, here is the God of glory. And he did not regard his status, his position, his privilege, his, his rights. He did not regard them as something to hold on to. On the contrary, he laid them aside and he humbled himself. He humiliated himself to be born and to be numbered as a man. Baby. Embryo, zygote, Nazareth, rejected, cross, burial. He humbled himself to be found as a man, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only is that the public credentials of this king, who is king of kings. The Bible records it, reveals it, announces it, dare I say, markets it, and boasts about it. Why? Well, here's why I think at least one thing that you can take away. From the manger to the cross. From the manger to the cross. And then the tomb, the king of kings, laid aside his robe. It's not up there, so I'm going to read it slowly for you. From the manger to the cross, and then the tomb, the king of kings, laid aside his robe. That's the mark of royalty, regality. He laid aside his robe and the declaration of authority. And he laid aside his crown. Why? To save his people from their sins. And why and how? To give us his robe of righteousness and the crown of his glory to the praise of his glorious grace. Brothers and sisters, I fully realize my inadequacies to try to communicate to you the amazing dynamic of what you have read in this genealogy about this king of kings. But if perhaps there is somewhere in your mind some longing, some passion, some desire to fulfill the amazement as to why the king of kings would come and why he would come like this, then I would say, listen to him. He says, I've come to save my people from their sins. Why this humiliation? Because I came not to be exalted. I came in humiliation that you might be exalted with salvation. I laid aside my robe to cover you with my robe of righteousness. 
I laid aside my crown to give you a crown for all of eternity. He did it because he came to say, or listen to him when he says this, I have come to seek and to save the lost. He came to save his people from their sins. Thus his humiliation. He came to save us from our sins and he came to seek and to save those who are lost in their sins. Thus his humiliation. And if you will, and not only should you listen to him, just look at him. Look at him in the manger. Look at him in his childhood. Look at him in his life. Look at him in his death. Look at him in his burial. He has humbled himself. And if you want to know why, just not only listen to him, but look at him. This one who humbled himself to the point of an atoning death so that he might save us from our sins. In other words, he has come to save his people who are what? We are sinners. To save us, he must come among us. To be among us, he must be one of us. To be one of us, he must become like us. So this sinless Savior is humbled to the point of being among us, to being with us, and then to taking our sins upon himself. My garments of filth he took to the cross to give me a robe of his righteousness and a crown for glory. And in case you miss it, he not only came to save us in his humiliation, he came through those just like us. Irreligious. I don't know where you are today. Are you religious? He came to save you. Because your religion is not going to do it. Irreligious? He came to save you. They're in his genealogy. The religious and the irreligious. Oh, I'm a woman. He's included them. He wants you to know. I save women. The Savior came through. Women tell us he came to save women who are sinners. Men who are sinners. Bond. Free. Enslaved, those not enslaved, he has come to save sinners, male sinners, female sinners, religious sinners, irreligious sinners. He has come to save, he has come to seek and to save the lost. And there is no one who has a sin he cannot redeem you from if you will say yes to the Holy Spirit and come to Christ and put your trust in him alone. There's nobody with a sin that he cannot forgive. Oh, Harry, you don't know the addiction of it. Listen, see the sexually immoral? See the prostitutes? See the apostates? See the men who promoted child sacrifice? See those who are apostates and deniers? See murderers like David? They're all there in the genealogy. Because the legacy of his humiliation is to save sinners just like the sinners he came through to save us. So there is none of us, male, female, bond-free, Gentiles in this genealogy, Jews in this genealogy, up and inners, down and outers, religious, irreligious, sexually immoral, and covenantally faithful like Mary. Yes, Mary needed a Savior. That's why in Mary's Magnificent she said, I am giving birth to who? The King. 
who is my Lord and Savior. He saves any and all who humble themselves to come to him. Who who humbled himself to exalt you and me at the right time. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, that the King of glory, King of kings of glory may come in. Open the doors that this King of kings, who set aside his glory in order to save you, to bring you to glory, may come in. Sons of earth with a second birth, granted his perfect righteousness, having been cleansed by his shed blood and given a crown so that we can cast it before him in praise and worship for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments in your word. May I ask you, Father, for three things this morning as we finish our study of this series and this text. And this just very brief and adequate, but at least heartfelt and hopefully biblically faithful. And look at this king who has come not to exalt himself, but to humble himself that we might be exalted. And so, Father, my first request is I don't know who's here today, but I do know there may be some who have not yet come to this king who came for them. May they come. And friends, listen, you can't be saved. May I just say a word to you? You can't be saved without this king who humbled himself to save you. And you're never so far away, you can't be saved. And your sins are never so great, you cannot be forgiven. And they are never so powerful that he cannot break their dominion. But you've got to come to him. And you've got to call upon him. And if you do, you'll be saved. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. I see you not only came to save people like me, you actually came through people like me to save people like me. So I come to you. And then, Father, my second request is, would you please fill this congregation with people that will go tell other people about this Savior and bring them to hear of this Savior and bring that Savior to them that they may hear him? Please fill us with that passion. And then finally, Lord, would you fill your people to overflowing that they needed a Savior, King of Kings, who would do battle. They needed the Lion of Judah to come and do battle as the Lamb of God. And praise your name that you've won the victory and defeated Satan. Come quickly, Savior, and destroy the kingdom of darkness. But until then, fill our souls with praise. Fill your churches with sinners saved by grace and send us to the world to tell the world of Jesus, who is no friend to sin, but is a friend to sinners, our Savior, in whose name I pray, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. 
Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.